All right. We pick up tonight in Isaiah chapter 40. Somewhat like our English Bibles have 66 books, and they divide into 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament, so also Isaiah has 66 chapters in our English Bibles and divides into 39 chapters, which we've finished so far, and then the final 27, 40 through 66, uh, are, are unique. Uh, they're different than the first half. Now, when we say that it's different, uh, we mean a couple of things. Uh, the first is, as you may remember back before in chapters 34 and 35, we talked about how those chapters were hinges to the book. And so 34 focuses on the judgment of the Lord, but 35 looks beyond the judgment to a time of restoration. That focus of restoration, as opposed to a focus on judgment, uh, is, is primary in chapters 40 through 66. Another way that it's different uh, is that for the most part, these prophecies concern things that post-date the life of the prophet. These are prophecies that were given by Isaiah that deal with things after his death. And we talked about last week how the prophetic books, uh, it's very easy to see in Isaiah, it's very easy to see in Daniel, uh, are arranged in such a way that the prophets are validated by the prophecies they gave in their life that came to pass during their lifetime. And then, following, we find the rest of their prophecies that we can now read with confidence that they speak for the Lord and will come to pass. Um, the last way that this uh, passage, uh, excuse me, the rest of the book focuses is it's here where it begins to deal with uh, the Babylonian exile. Okay, and so in Israel's history, uh, the ten northern tribes are taken out by the people of Assyria. It's those same Assyrians that surrounded the kingdom of Judea, that pressed in all the way to Jerusalem, that under Shennacherib had Jerusalem surrounded by. It's, it's that same uh, Assyrians that Isaiah spent extensively talking about and preparing the people to trust God in the moments of that. But you may remember from last week, uh, one of the last recorded acts of uh, King uh, of King Hezekiah is inviting in this Babylonian envoy, and Isaiah is sent to question Hezekiah about who it is he's had visiting and opened his pantry and shown all of his wealth to. He explains that the, it's the Babylonians, that they're from far away, and God explains it will be those people who bring judgment on Jerusalem. Okay. That is the last thing we read about in chapter 39. It is in chapter 40 and beyond that Isaiah begins to focus on not the coming judgment of the Babylons, uh, Babylonians, but what comes after. And so much of what he addresses, we'll see this over and over again tonight, is written not to the people of Isaiah's own time directly, but their children who will be living in Babylon and experiencing the judgment of God and wondering, is this it for Israel? Is God's faithfulness come to an end? Are there no more promises? Is, have we gone too far the wrong way? And so notice... 
uh, notice that chapter 40 opens with a message of comfort. Verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort for my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. She is received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. And so the message here is a comfort of, of judgment coming to an end. Do you see that? Of pardon coming here. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is taken care of. We're back on good terms. And then notice it says she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Uh, there's two possibilities here, maybe three. Okay. Uh, one possibility here is that the experience of the Babylonian conquest is more than merely God's judgment on Israel. In other words, uh, as God critiques the Babylonians in another place, he says, I've used you as my instrument, but your cruelty you know, exceeded the boundaries of justice. And so it may be here recognizing that, that they have suffered greatly, not apart from their own sins, but above and beyond that, not because of God's judgment, but because of Babylon's cruelty. That's one possibility. Uh, another possibility here is that this idea of receiving double means effectively, in, in a parlance that isn't modern, in, in, uh, in colloquialism of Isaiah's day, just paid in full. It's just a way of secondhand saying it's completely taken care of. Those, I would say, are the two primary ways to understand this. But again, it's a message of comfort because judgment is over. And then notice verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I actually want to begin at the end there in verse 5. Okay, Verse 5 uh, pictures a time where God is going to reveal himself uh, and all flesh will see the glory of the Lord. Now, Isaiah, and Isaiah alone in chapter 6, saw the glory of the Lord. And you remember what it was like for him, right? As he fell before his face and said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. And if it weren't for the fact that an angel had come with a coal from the altar and touched his lips, uh, all he could imagine is death. Uh, but here, God looks forward to a time where this revelation will not just be the vision or experience of a single prophet, but a worldwide event. Okay. Prior to that happening, it says here, there's going to be one who comes to prepare. Here he's just labeled the voice. In fact, he doesn't seem like a very effective representative because where is he crying from? He's crying from the wilderness Make straight, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if we understand it correctly, in those days uh, when royal envoys would travel to distant places within their kingdom, uh, it would be preceded by significant road work. Okay? We can probably draw a somewhat similar parallel to when the president comes to town, except with us, you know, they're sealing manholes and investigating every corner. It's a security issue. 
Um, in that day, there was that. They wanted to make sure that the roads were safe for the king, that all the bandits were driven out and those types of things. Uh, but they also, uh, they also wanted the ride to be, uh, to be comfortable. And so uh, an envoy would be sent ahead of time to prepare things, to roll out the red carpet, as it were. Okay? But notice this is happening out in the wilderness, and it's happening on a much larger level. This isn't just filling in potholes and smoothing over speed bumps. This is filling in valleys and leveling mountains. Okay? It's, it's a big operation that we see, and again, it's tied up in this voice crying, the messenger whose job is to prepare. Now, those words are quoted in the New Testament, um, but we need to make a pit stop before we turn to the Gospels, and we need to turn to the book of Malachi, the very last book in your Old Testament. Malachi makes two references that are significant for us tonight. The first one is in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, listen to how familiar, how similar this sounds. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Again, Isaiah says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You see how similar those seem? It's as if Malachi is referencing Isaiah's old prophecy and doing something with it, building upon it. And then notice what it says next in verse, uh, verse 1 continues in chapter 3 of Malachi. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, and so basically God says, I myself am coming to visit you. But a messenger comes first. Now notice what he says a chapter later in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so here, again, in the same language, behold, I send my messenger to prepare my way before me here. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes. Okay? And so it's no surprise then when we get to the New Testament that they take these passages from Isaiah and from Malachi and collectively they see them uh, as explaining the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, that's how John the Baptist describes his own ministry. I believe it's in the Gospel of Matthew when an envoy of religious leaders from Jerusalem come to vet this so-called prophet in the wilderness, and they say, who are you? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? Who are you? And he says, I am the voice crying in the wilderness, make way or make straight the way of the Lord. That's how he identifies himself. Um, in fact, we can see that happening pretty well in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 2. This is the very opening of Mark's Gospel. Basically, we have the introduction or the title before this. And then verse 2 says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sin. 
Now remember, later in John's ministry, related to this thing, he began to preach and he said, I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. Okay? So do you see how all these things fit together? John is the messenger preparing the way of the Lord. God is speaking of a new time that's coming, a visitation, if you will. And John is the forerunner of it. He's the beginning of it. This, this expectation and this prophecy or this promise begins here in Isaiah and is built upon in Malachi. Okay. And notice the culmination again in verse 5. The voice in the wilderness will come. The way will be prepared. The Lord will show up in his temple suddenly, which we see as Jesus cleanses the temple. But eventually, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. If you read Jesus' ministry closely, you will see that he points forward beyond his time in Israel before the crucifixion, after the resurrection, leading up to his ascension, he points forward and he says that time's still to come. And as we continue to study through the prophets here, we'll find reference points to that, the day of the Lord, where Jesus himself descends and as his foot touches the Mount of Olives, every eye will see, everyone will know that he is the Messiah. But here it begins with a forerunner. And again, Isaiah here is speaking in the context of people who are either in his day expecting the judgment of Babylon or a generation later enduring the 70 years of exile uh, and he's looking well beyond that. He's pulling the curtain way back and showing way down the line. Verse 6, a voice says cry and I said what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, what we're entering into here in chapter 40, we'll see this many times tonight, we'll see it more next week, is a divine defense where God basically says, here's what sets me apart from the idols that you worship, Israel. Here's what sets me apart from the gods of the nations. Here's why, even though you have been defeated and they have given their gods the glory, read the beginning of Daniel, right? Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem and he comes back and he throws a party and he celebrates what his gods have done, conquering the gods of Jerusalem, okay? And so there's a divine... Uh, calling to account a divine defense of what sets God apart from the little g-gods, from the idols and the uh, gods that were worshipped by the other nations. And the first statement that's made here is one of contrast. Basically, the Bible says, people, human beings, they come and go. He says it's just like a small spring flower, like the crocus that comes up and a month later it's gone but the word of the Lord will stand forever. The promises that are here, even though they're long-standing, even though there's 70 years in Babylon, and then the return under Ezra and Nehemiah, 
Okay. And then as we get to the end of the book, the close of the story in 2 Chronicles uh, and some of the final prophets of the Old Testament, then there's 400 years of silence until this messenger comes. But the word of the Lord endures as people fade. In fact, Peter takes this statement from Isaiah's great defense and he brings it forward to our times and our challenges. Notice what he says in 1 Peter Chapter 1, Peter here writing after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to the church says the following in chapter 1, verse 24. In fact, let's, uh, let's begin in verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says we can live differently. We can stand steadfastly on our salvation because... Our salvation is based upon God's word. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says in Romans, and hearing by the word of God. And so he says, since you've trusted in this word, you can be confident. And then notice what he says in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory of the flower of grass, the grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so... Peter says here, you can stay, you can stand, you can sit, you can be secure in the salvation of Jesus Christ, whatever you're facing. Now, if you're not familiar with this, 1 Peter's primary message is one of enduring suffering, okay? And so they are feeling the withering and the fading pretty heavily. They're experiencing the difficulty of standing for Jesus the temptation of fleeing from persecution by forsaking their thing. And he says, but that would be a mistake because the word of God, that will still be standing when all of your enemies are dead. Just like the grass that withers and the flower fades, so is man, but the word of our God will stand forever. Going back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And so here he's calling Jerusalem itself. He's calling uh, the voice, maybe, the one that we were talking about. He says, cry, and now we see where he's crying. He wants him to cry to Jerusalem, and he's crying, behold your God. Notice there, twice in verse 9, we see uh, the words for good news. Okay. Isaiah will continue to mention this good news. Peter mentioned the good news. Okay. Verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend a flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so notice here the arrival of God means two things. It means victory and it means care. Show up, conquer, defeat, bring about victory, bring about freedom, 
and then take care of, lovingly nourish and protect. Those are the two images there. And then we get back to this defense again. Notice verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Okay, so the question is, who is so big and so great that he can just cup his hands together and hold the oceans? Who's so big and so great that between his thumb and forefinger, that's a span, he can measure the heavens? enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighs the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Now, obviously, this language here is anthropomorphic. It's not suggesting that God is giant-sized, but it's a reminder of the fact that the universe is not bigger than God is, that God is transcendent, and that he's the only one. Every other one fits inside the box of creation. Every created thing exists as uh, to scale with the universe, but God transcends it. Notice what he says in verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? And so he says on top of that, not only does God stand completely alone in being the creator and being transcendent, but who is going to say, yeah, I am God's trusted counsel. I'm the one he goes to for advice when he's struggling to figure out what to do next. Again, uh, verse 14, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Okay. Here's the thing. Again, Israel's problem is a problem with enemies. And those enemies are human. And they're looming large in the mind of Israel. Just like they do in our life. Our problems can seem so big And what he wants to point out here is uh, that that's a mistake because if we weigh them in the scales against the living God, there really is no comparison. Notice what he says, behold, the nations, that's all of them, are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted like dust on the scales. They don't even tip it, right? It just sits there, unrecognizable, uh, uh, it doesn't register. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Okay, the earth that we stand on is, is like dust to the Lord. Lebanon, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are all its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Okay, and so this is a statement of worth. He says, what would it take to offer God the sacrifice that he is deserving? He says, cut down every tree in Lebanon to build the fire. Slaughter every animal that fills the forest, and it, wouldn't, it would pale in comparison to the worth of the Lord. There's a hymn that I love singing called The Love of God, and it says this. It says, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, were all the oceans, uh, now I've got it all backwards because I should have started there, Uh, louder, if were all the oceans, were all the seas, I don't remember, filled with ink, and the entire sky a parchment made. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Right? God's so worthy of worship, when we remember that, we understand that our problems aren't worthy of fear. That's why one of the great reformers said, the man who fears God need fear nothing else. 
it's a reality check. It's a perspective uh, refocusing. Verse 17, all the nations are nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And remember, this is not a statement about if God cares about humanity. It's about the threat of humanity in weighed in the scales of God. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with him? Okay. And so he says, how do you even put them on the same scale? How do you even measure them with the same metric? A friend was telling me about that new documentary, Chernobyl. And he was explaining to me that when the first, everything uh, happened at first, uh, the government sent men in with Geiger counters to figure out how bad things were. And they came back and they said, well, this is the measurement. And he said, oh, well, that's just like getting an x-ray. And he said, no, it's like getting 100 x-rays every second. And he said, but there's another problem. This measurement we're giving you is the maximum measurement on our Geiger counter. We're going to have to create a new device to measure the uh, radiation. And they went in and it was a thousand times greater than that. Okay? Their instrument couldn't possibly measure small little things like the radiation you might find you know, from rocks in the desert and a huge nuclear meltdown. In the same way here, God is basically saying, how do you put two things on a scale and compare them when one is God? He's completely unique. He's completely transcendent. When it says, or what likeness do you compare him with? The idea is, how do you draw a simile that's strong enough to really understand, to explain God? Now, the Bible is comfortable using similes. We just encountered one, right? God is shepherd. But we know that when we say God is like a shepherd, we do not mean a shepherd is like God, right? The comparison only works from the small to the large, and only if we really stretch the shadow, stretch the light we put onto it, do we find a similar scale. But why is he asking this question? It's not just about the nations, it's about the gods of the other nations. Verse 19, an idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. He's to impoverish for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Okay. The idea here is that the foundation of the existence of this God, somebody dug real deep into their allowance and built it. And they went, oh, you know what would be the worst thing is if my God fell over, and so I better buy a nice, strong wooden pedestal to set it on, one that's of a wood that won't decay, that won't rot. Okay. And again, the problem here is not that Israel's nations thought that every little stone carved into the shape of some god was divine. They didn't worship rocks. It's that those rocks rightly represented the non-gods that they worshipped. It's that they couldn't understand that by starting at that end and not just creating with their own hands, but creating with their own imagination what they worshipped, it was guaranteed to fall short of true worship. Again, imagine that idea of what likeness. To what likeness can we compare God? Uh, C.S. Lewis, I believe it's in a, The Problem of Pain, but it might be in A Grief Observed. He talks about how, uh, how every understanding we have of God, including the one you have right now, is kind of like a house of cards. You build it up over time. You come to more understanding over time. And he says the thing about suffering is, suffering is when God comes in and he just knocks down the whole house. 
And he said, we're always going to build again, but every time we build it, we'll fall short of who God really is. He has a poem where he talks about how, how every prayer God receives is full of false understandings of him. Not because we're merely evil in our intentions, but our understanding is always going to fall short because it starts with a broken vessel. It starts with us. It starts with a skewed perspective. All the more when we try and make gods in our own liking to meet our own needs. Listen, verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the, of the earth? In other words, you of all people. Israel, don't you already know that the idols are nothing? Haven't we been here before? Have you read the Exodus, right? Have you experienced these things? Verse 22, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. In other words, he says, you've known this for a long time. Don't forget what you already know. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted, the princes. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. I love the language there. Just, just blowing and tempest. That's not what happens when I blow, right? Okay, I get dizzy if I blow. Uh, but with God, comparison is, is the thing here. And so he's emphasizing the lack of scale. And he asks again, verse 25, Who, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Remember that word holy means completely other, completely different. When there is only one sovereign God in the universe, what comparison can be made? What comparison can be made to the Holy One? Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these? Okay. What do we see in the sky that's being looked at there? What does he want us to notice? The stars. Okay. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Okay. And so we look up at the sky and the idea here is that each and every star we see is part of God's creation expressed by his desire and intention individually it says he knows them all by name now you may learn a handful of constellations you may even be an astronomer and study the stars and master the names of hundreds and thousands of stars but name them all and then that idea in the last one here it says because he's strong not one is missing it's probably perspectival in other words every night look they're still there Every day they disappear and they come back in the night and never is one not existing. It's a personification of God's providence. And the Bible pushes this really far, not just in the perspectival, not just in how we observe the world around us, but uh, the Bible says that every breath you breathe is in the hand of God. In Colossians it says, in Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created, also all things are sustained. It's as if Jesus is holding everything together with his fingers, and if you were to let go, that's the end. That's the idea here. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? 
Okay, so here's the interpretation of Israel during the Babylonian years. God failed us. And Isaiah is saying in advance, that's probably not the best interpretation. He's like, if that's the answer to your equation, maybe you skipped a variable there. Their only possibility for why life is so hard is that God is not the God he appeared to be. And he goes, well, there's another way to think about this. He wants us to use the character of God, the reality of God, his demonstrated faithfulness, the truth of his word as a baseline. Not a variable, but a constant. Then we fit all the other pieces in and it changes the outcome. We know, because we've been studying together, because we're acquainted with human nature in the Bible, we know that God told them this was going to happen, warned them for generations to turn around so it wouldn't happen, And even set the limits of it and said, I'm going to do this for 70 years. Read the book of Jeremiah. But in the midst of it, they're going, what is going on? Right? Which is literally human nature. Okay. What happens is we neglect God's word. We create our own versions of reality, pursue our own futures, and then when it bottoms out, as it always does, when our idols fall apart, as they always do, when we're crushed by our own sins, as we always are, we go, what happened? And the first thing we do is we blame God. That's a very ancient instinct. It goes all the way back to the garden. God lays out the rules whole orchard is yours for the taking. Every type of fruit in abundance. Every vegetable fully available. But there is one tree, just one that you can't eat of. And the serpent comes and he tempts the woman. And the woman eats and she gives to the husband. And God comes looking and he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam is hiding. And Adam says, I'm here, I was hiding. And he says, why would you hide? Did you eat of the tree? And he says, well, the woman that you gave me, she gave to me and I ate. He blames. And he doesn't just blame the woman. He blames God for making the mistake of giving him a woman like her. The woman that you gave me, Lord, this is your fault. That is the way we are. But notice again, the constant in our equation, verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, if your reason that God didn't show up is because God failed, you're starting from the wrong place. You've forgotten the basic rules of who God is. And then I love this because notice, first, he doesn't faint or grow weary. Uh, But the second thing it says in verse 29 is he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. In other words, when we tap out, when we experience weakness, when we're at the end of our rope, it's not just sometimes that we've gone our own way, that we've gone astray. It's not just that we've forgotten who God is, but God is still available, a very present help in times of trouble. Okay, And so it's almost a double mistake First, to blame God and then not to ask God for his help. The same God who desired to help us yesterday desires to help us today. In other words, this Babylonian exile may be too much for Israel, but not in the strength of the Lord. 
what God will take them through, he is capable of taking them through, empowering them for, protecting them in. And this is a promise uh, that God regularly makes, is that he will be present and that he will take us through so that we won't be overcome by the things in our life. Listen to the language here. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. The youngest, the strongest of us tap out eventually. We all hit the wall, okay? Even the most zealous and energetic and in good health people, if they just drive and drive and drive and drive, they will find the end of themselves, okay? Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Beautiful language here, right? It, it, the ideas of doing the impossible, of going the distance, of continuing on uh, uh, against the odds. But notice there's a contrast here. Okay? In some sense, if we rightly think about things, it's those of us that are weak that are best set up to succeed. Because those of us that are strong, we rely on that strength. And we use it up and we come to the end of it and there we are in the middle of the road. But it's those of us who are weak, who are acquainted with our weakness, who are dependent upon God saying, God, I can't make an, take another step unless you strengthen me. God, I need your help or I won't make it. Moses who says, God, you've, you've brought us out here and now Israel has rebelled against you. They've built the cow, golden calf and you're saying, I will send you forward. I will give you the land. I'll even send an angel to make a way, but I cannot go with you. And how does Moses respond? Please don't send us without you. Full and utter dependence. We will not make it without you. That's how, what Jesus means when he teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. The recognition is we're fully dependent upon God's house help before we take our first step. We can't just walk out there invincible and nonchalant, prepared for anything that comes. You know what happens when we do that? We pull a Samson. Samson goes out against his enemies, and the spirit comes upon him, and he slays a hundred men with the jawbone of a donkey. But then, through the temptation of Delilah, he finally confesses, he finally divulges, he finally breaks his Nazarite vow, his hair is shorn, and it says one of the scariest things it says in all the Bible. And Samson got up and went out as he'd done before. In confidence. He's rolling up his sleeves. He's ready for a fight, and it does not go that way. Why? Because the strength was never his to begin with, and he doesn't know it's gone. He's made the same mistake of a man who lives in, you know, the worst part of Chicago, who makes a habit of putting on that bulletproof vest every morning, and then one morning just accidentally forgets it and lives his life that day like he's wearing it. Okay? And so the contrast here is not strong people and weak people. It's independent people and dependent people. And that's Israel's mistake. Not only have they blamed God for their circumstances instead of confession and repentance, but they're also limping along trying to do it in their own strength when God is fully ready and able. Again, let me read it for you. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now let me give you the best part. What did it say earlier in this chapter about the word of the Lord? 
It endures forever. That includes this promise right here. If you're in need of strength today, if you feel like you're at the end of your rope, these words are for you, and these are the words of the eternal, truthful, faithful God, the one that we've just read about. Chapter 41, verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Okay, now this is one of the things that I love about Isaiah. Here he is counseling Jacob and Israel. They should know better. He's saying, I'm right here, I'm right available. And then he stretches this same message of the availability of strength way beyond the boundaries of Israel, all the way to the coastlands, all the way to all peoples. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Now, it may be there that that's the contrast. He's strengthening Israel to survive. He's calling the nations to strengthen themselves and see if they can resist. But it may be here that the word judgment isn't like judgment, like the big J judgment, but the idea of God's just decisions, the idea of righteousness, the idea of, uh, of God doing just. In fact, notice verse 2. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Now, here's another thing that we might as well lay down for the next few weeks in Isaiah. There's a cyclical nature to the things that he's going to talk about. He refers to things, and then he comes back to them, and he builds on them. Okay? And so here is the first reference to two things. One, some eastern king that's going to come conquering. And two, the fact that God says, I called it. I said this is what was going to happen. Okay? That's going to be a significant part of the next few weeks. But this is the first time it occurs. Now, when we get to Isaiah 45, God's going to name this eastern king by name. His name is Cyrus. And as Isaiah writes these words, we are hundreds of years before Cyrus is born. Okay? But God calls it now. And as we'll see, he's making this point, again, to contrast himself with other gods. I don't want to camp on this right now because we're going to come back to it. But we need to understand that according to the book of Isaiah, God sees the fulfillment of prophecy as being a verifying reality that he is God and there is no other. But here, there's a reference to a king who comes conquering, the deliverer for Israel, the one who's going to release them from Babylon. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay. Remember, during the days of Isaiah, Babylon is a minor player on the world scale. They become the conqueror. They become the empire until the Medo-Persians come in. Okay. And so here he says that's going to happen. And he says, was it Cyrus's gods, the Persian gods, Zoroastrianism? Did it have prophecies that Cyrus would come and deliver the Jews? He says, were the Babylonians expecting Cyrus to show up? Not even when the writing was literally on the wall were they prepared for that, Daniel tells us right? But here in the days of Isaiah, he lays out, oh yeah, you're going into exile just like I told you, but I'll tell you how you're coming out of it. And he makes it known. He makes it clear. 
And again, notice the language there at the end. He says, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The one who's outside of time. The beginning and the end. The Alpha and Omega. Verse 5, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. Now, if I'm right, it opens up in chapter, chapter 41, verse 1, with this offer of strength. But here again, we find a strength without God. We find neighbors trying to strengthen themselves in preparation. We find, uh, you know, uh, notice not only do they call each other to strength, but verse 7, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Okay? And so we're seeing again the building of an idol. And the picture is that one guy is encouraging the other and going, yeah, that looks right. That's great. And then they both strengthen it by nailing it to the surface so it doesn't topple over. Okay? He's saying there's something we've gotten backwards about worship, the, the reason why idolatry doesn't make any sense from a biblical perspective uh, is because the God who should be giving us strength, we have to strengthen. And we strengthen one another in the building of it. We're starting at the wrong end, but you, verse 8, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you who I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest cor- corner, saying, you are my servant. And pause again. Remember how I told you that there's this cyclical reality? Here's another major theme that's going to flow all the way through chapter 55. It's this idea of the servant of God. Okay. Now what you're going to notice, and we'll see it tonight, is there's at least three servants in view. It's pretty clear who this servant is, right? Again, read it. You who I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners. In fact, go back to verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant. Who are we talking about here? the nation of Israel. But we're also going to see the promise of a coming servant who will bring about justice, and then we're also going to see Cyrus next week, my servant. And if you're not paying attention, it's really easy to get those confused. And that's why to this day, many Jewish teachers, when they get to this servant song of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, go, well, that's just Israel. I mean, look in chapter 42. That's where it starts. This whole book is about God's people Israel. But if you read Isaiah 53, that is an interpretive impossibility because that servant suffers, Isaiah says, for my people. Who are Isaiah's people? Israel. So the servant suffers for himself, right? Again, another problem is that 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 servant suffers innocently, undeserving of punishment. Is that the Israel that we find in the book of Isaiah? Not even in the future chapters, as we'll see tonight, does Israel come out as being faithful. Pretty soon, the next time we see them referred to as my servant, he's going to call them my blind and deaf servant. That is not a compliment. Okay. But these these ideas of the servants are interwoven here. They're playing off one another, sometimes in contrast and sometimes in shadow. And so God was supposed to have a faithful servant in Israel, but he gets an unfaithful servant, and God's going to send a servant to set that right. God's going to use Cyrus, this foreigner, as a servant, and he's going to do the will of God even though his faithful servant will not, but he only foreshadows the one who is to come. Okay, That's what's going on in the big picture here. Again, back to the text. 
Um, okay, so verse, verse 10. He says, I've chosen you. I haven't cast you off. I made promises to Abraham. I brought you through the Exodus. All these things, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but shall not find them. You know that thing we do in movies, right, where there's some sort of reinforcement, and the person turns around to look and see who stands against them, and it's just an empty street and a tumbleweed? Right? That's the same picture here. When God is chosen for Israel's team, more importantly, when God chooses Israel for his team, who's going to be left standing on the opposition? Paul says the same thing about us as Christians. If God is for us, who will be against us? Right? There is no opposition that will stand. And so he continues here. He says, uh, those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say fear not. I am the one who helps you. I've noticed this problem that we have with many ideas in Scripture. Okay? I'll illustrate with one and then I'll show how it's the same thing here. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that we should love other people as Christ has loved us, we go, okay, Christ's love is as an example. We can look at Jesus and go, this is how I should love another person. But we miss a really significant idea there, that Jesus isn't just an out-there example. He's an in-there experience. In other words, it's not just that Christ loves well, so we should love well. It's we have been loved well by Christ, therefore we love others. Do you see the difference there? There's a major difference between seeing someone on television and saying, that person is a loving person, I should be like that person, and experiencing the love of a close father, and then loving your brother or your sister or other siblings because of that love. You see the difference there? It's a similar thing here. God isn't saying, don't be afraid because he doesn't think the things we're scared of are scary. It's not like with when, when you're with your friends and they're laughing because the things you're afraid of are funny to them. He's not saying, don't be afraid of those things because you're bigger than that, because you're stronger than that, because you could be more, should be more courageous than that. He says here, don't be afraid because I'm here. That's the factor. In fact, notice verse 14. Let's, let's understand where the strength comes from, where the courage comes from. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. Okay. You men of Israel. Uh, if you have an older translation, it might say there, uh, you little Israel. It's hard to tell what's going on in the text there, but th that would make sense with this idea of worm. The idea of them not being afraid is not because they're so big, not because they're so mighty. It's because God is so big and mighty. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. Okay, and so a threshing sledge is a farming implement, and when it's well sharpened, it just winnows the wheat not right over, just knocks it to the ground. It's all over and done. That's a pretty big transformation from a worm. Right? But that's the idea is in the hands of God, there's something more than they'd be on their own. He says, you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away and the tempest shall scatter them. 
and you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Now, one last little thematic thread here, one that's cyclical and comparative. We've been talking about in chapter 40 and in chapter 1 an Israel that's already defeated and an Israel that's going to be delivered from this king in the east. In fact, when Cyrus beats out Babylon, he does it without anybody bleeding. He comes in and the city just surrenders. It's just over. There's no fight at all. And yet here it says, Israel, you in your own right are going to be strong warriors and defeat your enemies. This is beyond. This is further looking. In fact, here there's no reference of Babylon, but the nations, the coastlands who are gathering together, all people. Okay, And so the idea here in Isaiah, and we're going to see it again and again, looks beyond Assyria at the gates, looks beyond the Babylonian captivity, looks beyond even the destruction of Jerusalem under General Titus that Jesus talks about as he enters into Jerusalem, looks all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, to this final war. It seems most likely that that's what's being talked about here. And again, remember, what are we talking about? God's unending faithful world, word that will not fail when all people do. Verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land spring of water. I'll put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. And you notice that word wilderness there? That doesn't speak of a place... uh, you know, like when we think of wilderness, I think of the forests of Snoqualmie Pass, okay? The word here for wilderness means desert, okay? And so seeing these trees, cedar, acacia, myrtle, and olive, is a, uh, what do we call it when forests become deserts? Desertification, right? It's a reversal of that process. It's suddenly the desert places teeming with plant life and becoming a forest, Okay? He says, I'm going to do this, verse 20, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together. The hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. And so he says here, I'm going to bring about life where there's no life. I'm going to bring about water where there's no water. I'm going to take the death and the empty and the desert and it will be teeming with life. We'll see this image again, but here it's just kind of laid there without explanation. Back to the idols again, verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Do you hear the courtroom imagery there? He goes, all right, time for the uh, you know, defense attorneys to present their evidence. You want to defend your gods? Let's hear it. Set it before me. Let's see exhibit A, verse 22. Let them bring us and tell us what's about to happen. Okay. We always laugh when there's a fortune teller in a TV show right? And they miss something that's in the future, okay? Not something they say is going to happen, but something that just happens right there that you of all people should have understood, right? It's the same thing here with the idols. He goes, all right, I've made my statement. It will come to pass. Your turn. Prove you are my equal, God of other nations, by prophesying what is to come. He says, tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. What does it mean, tell to us the former things? 
couple of possibilities. One, he's saying, how about you tell me about prehistory? How about you tell me what happened before you were here? Okay. Another one, and I kind of like this one a lot, is the idea here is not tell me the facts of history, but tell me the meaning of history. Interpret it for me. Explain what it all means, okay? which is something that God does because it's his story. It's one that he's telling. He's the one who gives it significance. He says, yes, Assyria has won because. Right? He's got a plan and a purpose, and he's carrying it out. And so he says, fine, look backwards and explain, or look forward and tell us what's coming. In fact, he pushes it further, and this is where it gets to outright mocking, verse 23. Tell us what's to come hereafter that we know that you are God. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. He says, do anything. Say boo, right? Do something to show that you're real. Now, I couldn't help but think about how common this is, even with people today and the big G God. This evidence that people use where they basically say, look, if God was really there, then he'd do something about it, right? Maybe they're crying out to be struck by lightning as a demonstration of God's presence, or, or maybe, like a woman I talked to here in Seattle a long time ago, just a stranger who I was talking to, um, and she was very resistant to Christianity. And I couldn't tell why, because there was clearly more there than I thought. And then at some point, she just interrupted the conversation and she said, well, if God is real, then why did my mother die of cancer? And she began to cry. That was the obstacle, right? Because as we can imagine, she probably prayed. She probably begged. It was probably a nightly routine for her to come before God and say, God, if you're there, please help my mom. And yet she died. But the thing you have to remember is here God has openly declared and said, you can know me by these things. He's not being put on trial. He's self-revealing. Let me tell you this. If the God who is there desires not to be known, then we have no hope of knowing him. If God is truly hiding out there or doesn't want us to know who he is, then it's over. But what we find in the Bible is a self-revealing God. As he says, I believe later in Isaiah, I didn't do these things in a corner. They weren't hidden from view. Okay. In fact, how often do we see the nations around Israel who have heard the stories and have seen the results? What is it that convinces Rahab, the prostitute, living in the city of Jericho to hide the spies, to defend them, and to ask for their help? He says, she says, all of us know. All of us know what you did to King Og. And to the other king, all of us have heard about the Red Sea drowning the Egyptians. We're all terrified of your God, right? Those evidences, those facts are there, and that's what God has done here. He's presented. He just asked for an honest comparison. And so, he says, verse 24, this is his verdict. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Verse 25, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name, and he shall trample rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads the clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. 
And this is a little bit meta, isn't it? Because where did God say these things? Right here while he's defending the evidence of it. Okay. He says, I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. There's that word again. Isaiah is the herald. He's the one who presents good news. He's laid it out for them. He's speaking it to the people. He's laid it out. He's written in a book so it can be proven and tested. Verse 28. But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they're all delusion. Their workings are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. And then again, we come to the servant. Verse 1 of chapter 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud nor lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And he looks forward to someone who he delights in, who he fills with his spirit, Remember what is said by the voice in heaven at the baptism of Jesus? This is my beloved son. In you I am well pleased, echoing these words here. And the spirit descends and rests on Jesus in the form of a dove, right? These are the things that's coming on. But notice, he's going to bring forth justice, and not just in Israel, but justice to the nations. But notice how he does it. This is such an interesting juxtaposition. Bring justice bring judgment, bring consequence, bring penalty, bring peace, all those things. And then notice verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or made it heard in the street. And then notice, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of gentleness. It's a picture of compassion. Okay. Even if the reed is bruised, he won't go, well, it might as well be broken. Even if the flame is sputtering out, he won't put it out with his fingers. There's a gentleness here. And then verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Okay. Now, I, I love that last sentence there, and the coastlands wait for his law because we see two sides here. We see one devoted to justice who's going to keep going till it comes, and we see a people at the greatest distance in anticipation of that coming justice. Now, do they know he's coming? Not really, right? The biblical paradigm is the Jews are the ones in the covenant. They're the ones who know. But the coastlands, the nations, the far out, they're the ones who are far from God. But it says here that they are waiting for his law. Listen, one of the things we need to understand as Christians is the longing people have today be them atheists or from other religions, the longing for things to be set right, the longing for what the Old Testament calls shalom, not just for a lack of war or peace, but for a fulfilling totality and everything is as it should be peace. We all have that longing. And inherently, it's a longing for the one who will set things right. And that's Jesus. Okay. And so here we have the picture of this servant to come. And we've already met him before. We've already encountered him many times in Isaiah, but here he's brought forward, and we see that he's going to be this good and true servant. Verse 5, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens, who stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit of those who walk in it. I am the Lord, 
I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from darkness, uh, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so notice here, this is the commissioning of the servant. That's what the words are. And so first, we get the identity of the commissioner. He's the one who made everything. He's the one who gives breath to all life. He's that God, and he says, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand, and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. Now, this is pretty unique language. The idea of a covenant is a commitment of loyalty between one person and another. But a lot of times, covenants are codified in a ritual or represented in a document or these types of things. A person being a covenant is an oddity. It's a strange thing here that he says, I'm going to make my servant a covenant. Not make a covenant with my servant. Not my servant will make a covenant with many. My servant will be a covenant. There's something that the servant is going to do that will be so significant, he will be the binding glue between God and people. He will be the connection point. And then notice here it also says not only is he going to be a covenant for the people or more likely the peoples, the nations again, notice the parallel, a light for the nations. And of course in, uh, uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world picking up on this imagery again. He basically says, I am a light to the nations. He takes the language here of Isaiah, and then notice again what this ministry of justice looks like, opening the eyes that are blind, bringing out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Now, if those words sound familiar to you, it's because they're going to be built upon in Isaiah 61, and that's the chapter that Jesus opens up in the scroll of Isaiah to, and says, these words they're being fulfilled in your hearing. But the first echo of that is here, and we'll see it continue to reverberate across the book of Isaiah. Continuing here in verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them, tell you of them, And so he says, you already have my track record. Remember what I said about the whole movement of the book? Isaiah can say that with confidence. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Everything I said would happen. How Jerusalem would be surrounded all the way up to the gates and then without the hand of man, the sword of a hand of another would deliver Israel in a single night. And that's what happens. And he says, now, God says, now I'm telling you what comes next before it happens, before it even begins. And then we get a hymn of praise. And this is another thing we'll see throughout the 40s in Isaiah is these interim bursting into worship. It's like when Paul is teaching through the book of Romans, explaining the whole gospel of salvation. And then he answers this big question, is God done with Israel? Is God still faithful to the promises, even the ones he made to Israel? And after he lays it all out, he's so overwhelmed that he just spills into doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In the same way here, as Isaiah lays this out, he calls for worship. And remember, this is worship now. 
not worship then. He doesn't say, on that day you will praise. He says, now, today, sing to the Lord a new song. God has promised to do new things. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the deserts and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy, let them shout from the top of the mountain. Okay, in other words, what he sees here is effectively uh, a global flash mob of just breakout singing. That's what God is worthy. Every city, whether you're near the ocean or landlocked, whether you're in the desert or in the good places, wherever you are, let you sing for joy. Let you shout from the top of the mountains. Verse 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. And again, we get an image of victory. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Verse 14, for a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in the way they do not know, in paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust and carve idols, who say to metal images, you are gods. In other words, God says, yes, things are on pause. During that seven years, 70 years of Israel's history, God's universal plan of salvation is effectively on hold. In the 400 years that exist between the Old Testament book of Malachi and the New Testament book of Matthew, or if we're going to be really specific, the New Testament book of Luke, okay, where there is no prophets, where God does not speak, that silence is broken, right? When an angel shows up to an old man, a priest named Zechariah, and he says, behold, I know your wife's barren, I know you're old, but you're going to have a son named John, right? And because of his shock, because of his awe, because of his unbelief, that silence is extended another nine months. He can't tell anyone until the birth of John. He can't open his mouth. There are these periods of time, but God says, you're wondering, where are you? What are you doing? Now, his faithful remnant, those who are close to him, know better. Remember Daniel? Daniel's reading in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the one who says it's going to be 70 years. And he looks at his calendar and he goes, oh, that time is almost up. And he begins to pray, God, is now the time you're going to move? It's the same time that's being talked about here. He says, I know I haven't been doing anything, but all of a sudden, it's going to be like giving birth. I'm going to bring it all about. He says, I'm going to level every obstacle. I'm going to remove everything. And even though you're blind, I'm going to lead you home. Okay. And again, the question is, who else? Who else treats you like I do, Israel? Why would you fear the gods of the nations? Why would you trust in them? Why would you make the mistake of comparing them to me? Verse 18, hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Remember earlier in Isaiah, he said, there's coming a time where I'm just going to make you all blind, where you're no longer going to hear, where he just hardens them because of their resistance. Now we see that time coming to an end. And then notice the, the horror of this. Verse 19, who's blind but my servant? Now, is that the servant who brings justice that we just read about? It can't be, right? This is my servant Israel. 
They're the ones who were supposed to be God's representatives, supposed to be faithful, but they weren't. Instead, they're blind, as deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one, or as blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. Ears are open, but does not hear. Okay, this isn't a biological problem. It's not even that what God is doing is behind them. It's right in front of them. But they won't understand it. They won't comprehend it. Verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They're all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They become plunder with none to rescue. He says the law was supposed to be what led to the shining of Israel, made them a kingdom of priests and a representative nation. People were to look at Israel and their goodness and their greatness and their wisdom and go, how could this be? He says, but instead, you're another nation's property. You're the spoils of war. And he says, spoil with none to say, restore there, none to rescue. Verse 23, who among you will give ear to this? Who will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose laws they would not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Remember, this entire Babylonian exile is an act of discipline to draw Israel to their knees so that they would call again upon the Lord. And he says, to a degree, it didn't even work. He says, here we are, you're in the midst, and you've just settled down, and you've just gone, well, I guess we live in Babylon now, and you've gone about your lives. Now, side note, Jeremiah encourages them to do that. He says, get married, have children, rent houses, plant gardens, but the reason is because they're going to be there for a while, for 70 years, so they might as well settle in. But Isaiah's critique here is that they were, you know, God was effectively trying to get their attention. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen. You see, the Babylonian exile is the greatest and final failure of Israel, who's supposed to be the servant, who's supposed to be the representative. Verse 1 of chapter 43. Let's do one more chapter tonight. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. Okay, so notice all of the things that are being built on here. Why should they not be afraid? Because God created Israel and formed them. Because he redeemed them and because he called them by name. And so he says, don't be afraid. And then verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Using surprisingly similar language to the passage in Daniel that talks about Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace, right? They come out of the furnace and the only thing the fire consumes is the ropes that bind them and they don't even smell of smoke. And what does Nebuchadnezzar see as he looks into the fire? He sees Shadrach. He sees Meshach. He sees Abednego. And then he sees another. Another in the midst of the fire, right? That's the big mystery of what's going on. Didn't we throw three in there? 
Similar here, God says, I'm going to be with you, and because of that, you will be safe. Verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Okay, so Egypt, Cush, Sheba, that's, that's basically Egypt and Ethiopia. That's the area that we're talking about. And he says here, basically, I've given them in exchange as a ransom for you. And we have to wonder what he's talking about here. There's a few options, okay? One that's suggested, which I don't think is very likely, that it's basically just an evaluation. That I'd be willing to give up three nations in comparison to you, Israel. That's how deep my love for you goes, okay? Um, the second, which is interesting, okay, so Medo-Persians, Cyrus comes in, and, uh, and conquers Babylon. The next king following him conquers all three of these places. Okay? Now, it's Cyrus who sends Israel home. He doesn't conquer these places. So it's not an even exchange. It can't be here that Isaiah is saying, to compensate Cyrus for letting you go, I gave him three other nations. It may be that he's talking about Medo-Persia as a whole and that exchange. Or it may be here that what he's talking about, we just don't know, and it's looking way down the chronological pipeline. Okay. I don't know. But the statement is one where he basically says, I have good plans for you, and he says, I've, re I've given Egypt as your ransom as well as Cush and Sheba in exchange. Why? Verse 4, because you were precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. That's so striking. This is the deaf and blind servant. This is the one who didn't get the message even when God had exhausted his discipline. And what does he say? I love you. Listen to these words in Hosea. Hosea, I believe it's chapter 11. Let's look at verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And then notice here in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They're deserving of judgment. Like I said, the, the great Israel experience in a, experiment, in a sense, it doesn't work. But they are loved. God's response is of warmth and compassion and passion. He's devoted to them. In fact, as we'll see, his whole plan to set things right, part of this redemption that takes place is not just Egypt, and Cush. It's his own son. Taking the sins of my people, Isaiah says, upon his own shoulders. Because you're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Verse 5, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring up from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. 
And to the south, do not withhold, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Again here, this seems to look beyond Babylon because I'll, you know, spoiler, Babylon doesn't exist around Israel. It's to the east. And so they come from the east, but he also calls them from the north and from the south and from the west, which means across the Mediterranean Sea. There's not really much over there in biblical geography, basically just Tarshish, Spain, okay? But he says, there's coming a time where I'm going to gather everyone who's called by my name. I'm going to bring them all in. And then he says, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, I think, although he's speaking here of the people of Israel, and even widening it out, those who are called by his name, that he's not just saying that he created Christians or Jews or his people for his glory, but he created human beings for his glory. The big question of why do you exist is unto the glory of God, okay? For his purposes, he's made and created and formed for his glory, people. That is destiny. That is the plan. Verse 8, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right. Let them hear and say it is true. And so he says, you know what? This deaf-blind problem is a lot bigger than the Jews. It's international. He says, gather them all up. And he calls again for evidence. He calls again for witnesses. But notice the tension here in verse 10. You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witness, declares the Lord, and I am God. Okay, so notice the tension here. He can't find anyone to represent the gods elsewhere. But he says, but you should be my representative, Israel. You've known me for a long time. You've seen me. I'm the one who raised you up, who brought you out, who did all of these things. Verse 13, also, henceforth, I am he. There's none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and ships which they rejoice. He says, it's for you, that I send Persia to break up the Babylonian party. It's for you that I bring about this change. Okay, so side note here. Calling Cyrus by name is not just God doing a magic trick to prove he's there. It is salvation, right? That's what he's saying here. He says, why am I doing these things? I'm telling you about it in advance because it's my plan, but my plan is for your good. It's for you that I'm moving you know, the gears of history, verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. Do you hear all of the different ways God identifies himself? You should just go through sometime, just in this chapter alone, and just underline all the unique ways that God identifies himself here. He's the King of Israel. He's the creator of Israel. He's the one who formed Israel, who called Israel. He's the Lord. He's the Holy One. He's their Redeemer. He's their Savior. Okay. Now, none of this is new language. None of this is novel, 
This is the verbatim out of the mouth of a faithful Jew who is God answer. But their life doesn't reflect that. Verse 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse and army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. He says, remember, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, who parted the Red Seas, who drowned your enemies in the same sea that you walked through on dry ground, verse 18. And then he says, this is so mind-blowing, verse 18, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Isn't that a little bit ironic? He says, hey, remember that time? And he says, don't talk about it. Don't even forget it. Why does he say that? He says, remember not why, verse 19, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Effectively, he says, you ain't seen nothing yet. Don't even talk about the last exodus. Don't even talk about the redemption I did for you. The redemption I have coming, the provision in the wilderness that's coming now, it's going to outstrip that. But, verse 22, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you've burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. He says, instead of coming in worship, instead of coming with sacrifices and gifts, you've wearied me with your sins. You've burdened me with your iniquities. But again, notice the swinging back and forth. Israel's character, God's character. God is their past redeemer and is in the future going to do a greater work. And yet Israel, you don't call upon me. You don't worship me. And then notice again verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. It's like moving between two columns. Column A and column B. But reconciling the two. It's just mind-blowing the character of God here. He paints Israel worse and worse and worse, and his plans for Israel get better and better and better. And he says, I will blot out your sins and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Okay. Notice the play on words there. What I'm going to do is going to be so great, I'm not even going to keep your sins in mind. I'm not going to remember them, so remember me. He says, put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you might be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. And so, we're not done yet. The story continues, but we end on a downbeat. And so God offers forgiveness, but he looks over the history again, and what does he see? He sees a whole laundry list of sin. He says, your fathers, at the very beginning, right? The law has just been carved on, on stone by the very finger of God, and as Moses is marching down the mountain, they're already breaking those commandments. And he says, and all of your mediators, all the priests that were supposed to represent you, all the kings that were supposed to lead you, even all the prophets that were supposed to call you home, 
What do I find? Sins. Unfaithfulness. I am no music theorist, but my all-time favorite classical song is Ravel's Bolero. I listen to it all the time, at least a couple of times a month. And because I'm not a music theorist, because I don't really understand the science of it, I don't actually understand how that song works. Because it only has one, maybe 16 measure melody. And as far as I can tell, all the instruments are there, every rotation of that 16 measures, but it builds and it builds and it builds and it gets fuller and fuller and fuller. And I don't really know how it works. I would like to, actually. But what goes on here in Isaiah 40 all the way through 66 is the same thing. These themes that he paints just small, they reverberate. But the next time we come around, they're richer or sometimes darker. But either way, they're deeper. And it just kind of like some sort of dance just builds and builds and builds until it climaxes in the last five chapters in unbelievable things. which both makes this part of scripture very hard to read and tremendously satisfying and enjoyable. There's a reason why life verses and memory verses and Facebook posts and particularly favorite sermons and such come out of Isaiah 40 through 66. This really is the heart of the Old Testament because it's where the Old Testament starts to point so significantly to the new. It's where God starts to look to the new covenant, like is mentioned in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where God starts to look to the provision of Jesus, where God looks beyond that to the setting of all things right. This is really the first place where we get full verse after verse, chapter after chapter personification of what God promised to do all the way in the beginning of the book of Genesis to set things right. So come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we want to stand on the truth we opened on tonight that grass withers, flowers fade, peoples die, enemies uh, expire, entire generations go by and are nothing. History is forgotten and yet your word remains. And if we build our life on that, if we trust now in the hard times, in the dark times, in the unknown, in the in-between, in your word, the word that was declared from the beginning, the word that comes from the one who made all things and who was here before, he who was and who is and who is to come, then we will not be disappointed. We will not be let down. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us that truth and that you would demonstrate it in the little seasons we go through, in the hardships we face. And when we come out the other side, we would give glory to you knowing that you have been with us, that you have held our hand, that you have given us our strength. And because of that, we have run and not grown weary. And for those of us who are weary tonight, those of us who feel like we just don't have anything left, thank you that our need doesn't change your character. It just gives us the possibility to access that character. I pray that you'd help us to come humbly and fully 
and with honesty and just say, give me strength, be present in my life, fix the mess that I have made, my future I surrender, my past please forgive, my present you have my whole attention. I thank you for this, this statement right in the middle, Lord. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. And what a privilege, Lord, for us to not just hear about it, but to experience it firsthand, to taste of it, and to know your full intentions, to not just hear the expressions of my plans for you are love and hope and a future, but to actually experience it, what I has not seen, what has not entered into the heart of man, what we can't even imagine, these are the things that the New Testament declares to us as accomplished in Jesus Christ. We praise you for them, Lord. We thank you. We pray that we would live our lives out as an embodied expression of the worthy praise and worship that you deserve. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a good night.